Hello, I'm Kerry Garrity. And I'm Caroline Grace Cassidy. And this is Bookbirds. Today we're going to be talking about Sharon Owen's book, The Tea House on Mulberry Street. Yes, we are going to be talking about Sharon's book. It's her debut novel and it came out in 2003 and I read it um, back then and absolutely loved it. It was probably the first book by a Northern Irish writer that I'd read that really did not even hint really at the troubles. The, the, the book kind of casually glances against them yeah. in a way um, very, very seldom. Uh, but really, it's a book about ordinary people living ordinary lives up in Belfast. What a sort of release and release a relief it was to read a book that's set in Belfast during those times that just decides to skivvy around the inevitable truth of the troubles and the lives, the, the bombings that were going around and all the atrocities that were happening. Yes. But yet we are cosied up in a delightful tea room. It's Sharon's debut novel. Yeah. And to me, it just comes perfectly formed. It is very assured writing. Um, and it's, it's an ensemble novel. Mm. So it's this eclectic collection of characters um, sort of centred around the tea house on Mulberry Street which is the uh, the, the, t- where mm-hmm. the title um, and so we meet the characters in the tea house and then we follow them back to their homes and there's a huge cast of characters and uh, Sharon manages to juggle all of these characters bring them along develop their stories and you just feel like you're in this really expert pair of hands because she makes it look so 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 yeah. simple and it really does re- you'll you'll gobble this up in, in one sitting this book it's, it's not a massive book and if it's filled with fantastic characters and the most beautiful delectable <laughs> delightful food and if I were to liken this novel to a uh, confectionery I would say it's a Victorian sponge cake <gasps> oh. it, it's it's just it's beautiful it's yeah. delicate yeah. it's sweet yeah. and this is a novel and it's perfect for this time of the year Christmas time mm. it's actually set in 1999 yeah. so we were all heading into the millennium mm-hmm. And with the great unknown at the time, loads of people were making tons of money by telling people, Y2K, your computer <laughs> yeah. system is going to turn back into an abacus and, and you will be penniless and homeless. And everyone the fear was, was real. Yeah, the fear was real. Everyone was completely freaked out. Yeah. Um, and uh, so this book is set in 1999. And um, so you do have that air of uncertainty. Yeah. But mostly it's really about what's going to happen in these people's lives. But it ends in Christmas 1999. So it's the perfect reading for this time of the year yeah. because as I say you'll read it you'll gobble it like a Victorian sponge in one sitting and I would recommend that you read it curled up on a couch light your fire if yeah. you don't have a fire just you know switch on your two bar heater <laughs> yeah. uh, just get warm or Put just, it on your phone yeah <laughs> and, um, and and just yeah and just sit back relax and enjoy there's yeah. nothing else to be done no. with this book and I think that's the genius of, of Sharon's writing in this book is that it just feels so safe you know and, and when we think about the background that was writing it in and you know I've read stuff that Sharon has said before that it was so conscious to sort of put all that away and behind and just you know invent these beautiful the buildings even the tea house itself it's so quaint and you know even though you know it starts off in the book with Penny and Daniel Stanley and you know she has been left the tea house by her parents but meets this guy who is I suppose you'd say maybe marrying her for the wrong reasons in the beginning that he sort of wants to have, you know, he kind of wants safety and he wants financial security. So he sort of marries her into that. So immediately Sharon brings us into this, into the world of the tea house. And and like, you know, when you sit down in, in, in any restaurant or shop, things happen people come and go and I love that you just don't know who's going to walk through the door next oh yes and that that is the magic of this book but before we get into the book let's have a just a very quick recap of Sharon herself so she is a writer from Northern Ireland as we said she was born in Oma and she moved to Belfast where she studied fine arts because she wanted to be a painter she wanted to be an illustrator and that was her her foremost ambition Uh, but then she decided that uh, it was too difficult um, to get into illustration because it had all moved to computers (laughs) and she wasn't happy with that and I um, hear you yeah 
she liked to sketch and she liked to paint but um, and what's gorgeous about this book and yeah. what gives it a really oldie world feel to it is how Sharon um, first of all she gives titles to every chapter which yeah. I love love that as well but it's really old fashioned isn't yeah. it and then what she does is she does a little pencil sketch uh, at the beginning of each chapter gorgeous. that feeds into something that's going to happen yeah. in the chapter itself and uh, and that's gorgeous so obviously and she's she's a fantastic illustrator like to illustrate a not I mean I don't think I've ever seen a, a novel with illustrations in it before it's really it, unusual it's really unusual but it's so it really adds to it it adds to the experience of the book um, so yeah she she uh, she left Queen's University and um, she decided no she wasn't going to be an illustrator and then she met she got married and she moved to the suburbs she had, they had a daughter and um, it wasn't until her daughter was 10 that she decided she was going to write a novel and she sat down and wrote The Tea House on Mulberry Street. And I'm so, so glad that you did, Sharon. Thank you for that. Wow. And um, I think in the, in the same way, a lot of um, Irish writers start out as I think she had seen an advertisement or someone had mentioned an advertisement from Poolbeg, again, who seem to have started a lot of, of uh, excellent writers um, and that sort of set her on the course of sitting down and doing it. Yeah. So what she did was uh, in this book, there is a character called Sadie Smith mm. Um the, her hus- Sadie's husband's horrific uh, <laughs> girlfriend on the side, uh, called Patty Pat, Patty Pat. calls um, Sadie uh, Sadie Sponge and the bitter lemons. The bitter lemons are uh, Sadie's husband's pair elderly parents wow. who lives with them. So what uh, Sharon did was she wrote to Fullbeg and uh, gave them a short story called Sadie Sponge and the Bitter Lemons. And uh, Paula Campbell, who was there at the time of Fullbeg, read this story, loved it, and asked. Asked Sharon if she could write a novel featuring ah. Sadie Sponge, and that's and that's exactly what she did. And according to Sharon, it took her six weeks to wow. write the Tea House on Mulberry Street. Wow. She says she writes fast and she doesn't plan. Wow! And I want to know how how I can do that <laughs> with all those characters as well. All I those mean. characters, and like she makes it look so simple. It's an ensemble piece, so that you've got lots of different characters, yeah. and each chapter features a different character, yeah. and somehow. And that's how she moves the narrative along. It looks so easy. It's really hard. There's a whole sliding doors thing going on all the time, isn't there? You know, the stories are standalone stories for a lot of it but but the linkage and you know how they all in some way touch each other is uh it's incredible writing like it's 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 really brilliant writing. it's so gorgeous right gorgeously written and it's written with such a lightness of yeah, touch there's a comfort to it there's a comfort there? to it yeah. and also it's a laugh out loud book oh yeah, uh, yeah. sharon's comic timing <laughs> yeah. it's genius now yeah. it really really is. It, is it will literally warm the cockles yeah of your heart her character traits and her attention to detail I think are what really makes the book so so amazing you know apart from the you know the beautiful cherry cheesecakes and oh, the, the delectable way that she describes you know people's enjoyment of food yeah, you know that's huge in this it's novel huge yeah. in it and her attention to detail is so vivid that you know when you say to me she doesn't plan it she just sits down and out they come I mean Sharon Owens is a true artist right like you know we can we'll talk a bit about you know her, her poetry and her fantastic illustrations and her her drawings and stuff to look at her Twitter account and you see all her beautiful drawings so I think the book just explodes her creatively it has a fairy tale-esque yes, style to it yeah. and so you are just transported and it's pure escapism yeah. and you but you're really invested in these characters yeah. and um, some of them like uh, this great resolution this massive comeuppance yes and then there's some great comic set pieces um, and it's and also do not read this book without access direct access to really really nice treats <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going to make you hungry yes after the tea house on Mulberry Street Sharon wrote six more novels um, and then she stopped writing altogether for a wow. period of ten years she found apparently she found the publicity side of the book publication industry really difficult mm. and it is funny you know because you and I are writers mm. and you know, as far as I'm concerned, you should just be like our job is to write the novels mm. and then it's everyone else's job to do everything else. 
<laughs> you do no. your job, I'll do my job. <laughs> you know, but yeah. unfortunately, the world we live in, um, the writers are expected, you know, you wheel them yeah. out of their garret yeah. um, after a period of, now I know it only took her six weeks to write this, but usually, you know, you're talking 18 months. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're alone yeah. with characters in your head mm-hmm. uh, in the dark. Yeah. I, I write in an attic. Yeah. Do you know, I, it's... You're isolated. It's very solitary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you're kind of wheeled out into the bright blinking lights yeah. and then you're expected to kind of of you know perform yeah perform mm. yeah yeah, yeah. But um, and, is... and some people find it a lot easier than mm. others Sharon found it very difficult yeah you know and it's funny because I read an interview with her uh, where she talks about growing up in the north of Ireland against the backdrop of the troubles and she'd be brushed against bomb scares and stuff and, and bombs in fact going off a couple of times but what she found hard was getting the train down to Dublin and going to uh, a book event and signing wow. books and talking to the public. Whereas, you know, if I thought there was a bomb, <laughs> you know, Sorry, I'd no, yeah. run for the hills. Like oh, I would be terrified. Yeah. Um, but no, Sharon found the the pub publicity circus around and especially around her debut novel there was a lot of fuss about it yeah. there was a lot of it excitement went to about four, it wasn't it? it went to number four um, in, in Ireland I, it was on the New York Times bestseller list wow. it was translated into several different languages you know it was a real success yeah. story so does and Sharon say then uh, in that interview to her detriment do you think as an author that that incident that when she came to Dublin, she found it all really overwhelming, the publicity part. Yeah. Do you think that uh, that as a writer, she felt that, but we didn't see enough of her, basically. Do you think that was a, yeah. a, an issue for her? I think the public wanted more and more and yeah. more. Yeah. And um, Sharon just wanted to write her books. Yeah. And that's what she, that's her job. She's the writer. That's yeah. what she was. But she should even, have been allowed to do that. Even at that time, I think there wasn't as many for, I don't know, the market does seem a very large market in Ireland now, but I don't think the market was quite as large then. So I know we would have all known Patricia Scanlon to see on the news and Maeve Binchy and, you know, you, yeah. we'd recognised all the faces. Yeah. I think now there's a little you could hide a little bit better. But, Listen, but every second person is writing their novel. Let's I know. face it. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you say it. <laughs> but uh, but she, yeah. Sharon was compared to Maeve Binchy when she came out. She, people called her the new Maeve Binchy right. and she hated that oh. because she said like Maeve Binchy was still around yeah. and she was still writing, you know. Yeah. There was no need for a new one. I think that Sharon Owens has a style that's all of her own. Mm-hmm. She's she's really the original article. You yes. know, she's very authentic, yeah. and her style is very just. It couldn't she? It couldn't have been written by anybody else's no. book. No, you know, it's it's very distinctively yeah. a Sharon Owens novel. But she decided uh, she stepped away yes. from from her writing career. And um, after how many books? Then after that was seven books, she seven. published seven books, and uh, she stepped away from it. And uh, but I have heard <gasps> yes on the QT and that she is currently penning her eighth novel so we look forward to reading that the world needs another Sharon Owens novel really really badly Um, because as I say it's it's gorgeously escapist it's comforting it's very vivid it's so evocative and so yeah let's let's talk about the book yeah so just to give you a brief sort of sense of what it's about yeah um, struggling with a stale marriage yeah. and the somewhat outdated atmosphere of their tea house, Penny and Daniel Stanley serve a host of refuge-seeking customers, including a dieting housewife, a star-struck artist and a mysterious woman who seeks a long-lost companion. Mm. So here we start off with the tea house on Mulberry Street and it has seen better days. Yes. I feel so sorry for it when we meet at first. It's, it's jaded. It's jaded. Yes. It's it, a little like Penny. It's it, a little it, like me after the second <laughs> lockdown. You know, it's it's in want of some severe, you know, care, <laughs> attention. I need some grooming. <laughs> some TLC. Oh, yeah. But it's little. So, so when we meet, when we get into the tea house first, we meet Penny and Daniel, who are the owners of the tea house. Although Penny's really the owner because she, she got it from her parents. Daniel is the blow in and he uh, he basically married her mm. for the tea house. Yes. Because they met. Uh, unfortunately, Penny suffers from that um, horrific condition that many women suffer <laughs> for and it's called romance. Yeah. And really, ladies, just, you know, it, it, it's not going to bring you any happiness. No. 
don't just remove that from yes. your from your must have list. Yes. Um, one of my friends' mothers told her, "Never marry a mean man or a jealous man." And uh, now Daniel isn't jealous. No, but he he's sure is mean. Very mean. Ooh. Oh, he's so mean. Um, so he's based, and he's also older than her. She's only seventeen yes. when they meet. Unfortunately, Penny has gone to a fortune teller that very day. That's the night that she meets Daniel. She's gone to a fortune teller who tells her that she will meet a mysterious, handsome stranger uh, who will know her name before she even has to, you know, tell him. Yeah. Uh, and by the water. So Penny goes to a nightclub. It's by a body Waterfront. of water. She's wearing a necklace that says, Penny. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel is indeed mysterious and he is handsome. Yeah. And um, uh, he gets a Brian Ferry reference, I yes, think, at one does. stage. And uh, so he's got the piercing blue eyes yeah. and he's quite um, predatory at the beginning though I, I found I thought he was going to be more evil but yes he, he, he isn't really yeah no he is predatory and you're absolutely right because he's lost his job yeah. in the hotel where yeah. he works because he's been Stealing. He's been stealing loads stealing of stuff. <laughs> and it's hilarious because he steals paintings and he steals, you know, <laughs> lovely towels. But then he also steals tins of salmon. Yeah, he sells them. <laughs> At car boot sales. Yeah. Like who goes to a car boot sale to buy a tin of salmon? Oh, yeah. <laughs> a tin of salmon. <laughs> He's very thrifty, very nimble fingers, all right. Yeah, he, yeah. Took, he, took he gets away with it for years and years. Yeah. But finally, he's he's found out. Yeah. Um, and but, but he does have a very sad backstory, though. He that, does. You know, he's a really sad backstory really that we sad. find out later in the novel. And then you kind of think, ah, oh, poor wee Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> And by the way, I will be doing a Northern Irish accent. I apologise in advance. (laughs) It's not all that. (laughs) But poor wee Daniel, um, he has a tragic backstory because basically when he was four, Mm. his mother who wasn't like the other mammies on the street. No. She never baked and she never did any housework. She wore red lipstick. And um, in fact, the only thing she took with her when she leaves Daniel when he's four is her bright red lipstick and a brand new pair of shoes. <laughs> I'm like, go Mrs. Stanley. <laughs> so she heads off into the ender, into the, into the, into the ether. Yeah. And uh, poor Daniel is left with his Hideous. Hideous aunt. Aunt Kathleen, who tells him basically, oh, save the pennies, save the pennies. She has to say, save the pennies. And then he has to respond. And the pounds will look after themselves. And that's literally their only communication. Uh, I suppose in fairness, though, she took him in. It's the right pain in the ass, isn't it? If your sister fecks off and leaves you to bring up their four-year-old kid. I know, but I'd prefer her to have given him to, I don't know, um, an orphanage. (laughs) 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 At least there would have been other kids there. He was just suppose, so alone. Yeah. So Daniel has spent the rest of his life, when we meet him, he's 35, mm-hmm. waiting for Teresa, his glamorous, beautiful mother, to come on yeah. back home. Yeah. So when Penny meets him uh, and she falls instantly in love yeah. with him because, you know, notwithstanding the fact that her name is literally plastered <laughs> yeah. on her collarbone, uh, he knows her name. It's by a body of water and he's mysterious and handsome. Mm. And boom, Penny decides she loves him and she really does love him. Whereas Daniel is in a, re- he's reached rock bottom in that he's lost his job yeah. in the catering industry. He was a chef in a hotel. Nobody will touch him now. Nobody will touch him. He's been blacklisted because yeah. let's fair like no tin of salmon is safe <laughs> <laughs> so yeah he's he's looking and he's kind of look, deliberately looking for an older you know moneyed mm-hmm. or propertyed woman yeah. so he set out that night in a mission he, didn't he, that, he actually eat, put yeah. on a nice suit yeah, he yeah. even dances with Penny and he hates dancing mm. um, but he sees her even though she's not what he was looking for she's only 17 and she's very pretty she's, she's only 17 yeah. it's terrible mm. um, but the minute she mentions that she works in her parents uh, cafe which Cha-ching. is the tea house on Mulberry Street yeah, yeah. Daniel's ears prick up and he's in like yeah. Flynn. He marries her for the cafe. Yeah. And it's interesting there. I can't remember the name of the friend, but I know her friend took an immediate. Millie. Dis- Millie. Millie, yes. well done. Took a, an instant dislike. You know, it's. She did. It's always awful when. Millie Mortimer. Whoa. Thank you. Millie Mortimer. Well done. <laughs> when your friends dislike your, your, your choice of romance is always very hard. Yes. But I think it also shows how smitten uh, Penny was with Daniel to ignore everything and uh, start her life off with him, you know? Yeah. So they get married very, very quickly after yeah. the meet, in fact, because Daniel just wants to seal the deal there. Yeah. And uh, then they move into the teeny tiny flat above the tea house and uh, Penny's dad gives them 
the ca- the tea house for, as a wedding present nice. and says, oh, you can live in the teeny tiny flat upstairs just until you get yourselves your, you know, yeah. a proper family home or whatever. And um, but we meet them and it's 17 years later and they are still living in the teeny tiny flat above the tea house, which has never been refurbished. No. And they literally work like slaves. Yeah. Daniel does all the cooking. He refuses to get, you know, caterers in won't or pay a penny out for won't anything. pay a penny. They've got lino, cracked lino yeah. on the floor. I don't know how the customers manage, but he kind of says, oh, look, they come for the, the authentic, you yeah. know, like war torn. <laughs> Belfast look and uh, Penny is just crying out for a refurb not just for the cafe but for herself and also for her marriage which is failing badly they don't have a marriage in so far as I mean they don't sleep together at all like it's he's he's very horrible to her really well they do sleep together but hilariously they each um, get dressed in the bath they get undressed into their pyjamas they don't have (laughs) sex <laughs> like Daniel wears pajamas, and but he like she I, Penny can't remember the last time she saw him naked because he puts his pajamas on in the bathroom, then he hops into the bed, then he reads cookery books. <laughs> Then occasionally Penny asks him if he, he wouldn't mind awfully if they had sex. And he, he kind of, he does put out a, put bit. Out a little right, bit, yeah. but it's not something that he's really instigating at all. Wow, wow. <laughs> yeah. Hence Penny decides to... um look elsewhere <laughs> she does she puts her foot down yeah because she kind of thinks it's 1999 yeah we are going to have you know it's going to be a new millennium yeah and uh so i can either just stay here in this loveless marriage yeah. with absolutely no passion and she wants a baby she wants a baby like she's only 35 when yeah. we meet her and um, so she wants a baby daniel is saying oh no like the cost of school shoes <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. And then you'll just Silence want another one. If we have one baby, you'll want another one. Um so he's very much against it. And uh so Penny's kind of fed up and she's yeah. had enough. And also I definitely think the millennium coming had a has a big impact on her. Yeah. And she says to Daniel, she puts her foot down yeah. and she says, Look, I'm not going to be slaving here. I will work. She gives him her set hours. Mm-hmm. She starts taking money out of the till and she Which like Daniel kill him. Oh, kills him. And Daniel looks after you know don't worry darling I look after all the money so um, but she has a checkbook and she heads off and uh, one of the first things she does is sort of you know has a huge makeover which I love and this is a real trope of these kinds of books isn't it just though yeah and there's something so satisfying about the makeovers love it there shouldn't be really but there definitely is there really is they come out they go in to the the, the salon you know all bedraggled and (laughs) bowed down with the weight of the world Shoulders. And then they come out and it's like thoroughly modern Millie. You yeah. know, when she comes out, she's got the hair cut in the bottom. She gets the eyebrows tackled. Oh, she gets the eyebrows well. done. She gets yeah. her nails done. Yeah. She gets a makeover. She gets her hair cut. Yeah. And it she looks, gets rid of the slouchy clothes that she was wearing. Yes. Yeah. Like smart linen suits. Yes. And, you know. she, she The whole thing. Yeah. And um, she reminds me of, you know, Julia Robertson, Pretty Woman, totally. when she goes shopping that day yeah. and she's just got all the, all the bags. Yeah. And she comes home. Daniel can't believe it. But she just decides, this is how you know she she wants a baby she wants them to do up the cafe she wants them both to work less he doesn't want any of that so she says you know what i'm just gonna go and do it myself even though there's it's sharon paints a very clear picture that she still really loves him she loves him yeah she adores him Mm. i'm not really sure why no but maybe she senses his vulnerability perhaps you know because he is a very sad character yeah, yeah. you know he's basically it's a severe case of arrested development yeah. his mother he's left terrified. him when he was four yeah, yeah. Uh, he lived with his aunt Kathleen who never spent Christmas no. and um, so he never got affection so he doesn't really know how to give how to affection, give affection. and also then he's he's got the fear of be, of being penniless yeah. and then he he you know retains this vague and hopeless hope yeah. of his mother coming back so his I suppose his um, his uh, experience with women has mm. just never been never been good wasn't great was it not brilliant <laughs> shame on you Auntie Kathleen yeah and lipstick mom and I love it I love the fact when she dies um, and he buries her and he's only a teenager or something or you know a young man in his yeah. 20s and he said um, he left he didn't uh, you know build a headstone for her or put any uh, put any flowers on the grave and then he goes it's what Auntie <laughs> Kathleen would have wanted <laughs> 
Which is totally true. Yeah, so she does go off then, Penny. And I think, doesn't she pretend that she is going to view properties and she meets this kind of, he's a bit of a bit of a lad. Bit uh, of a lad and he's young and he's he's handsome. Richard, I think is his name. Richard. So she embarks on an affair with Richard. Yeah. And off she goes. And it is kind of disappointing as a reader. You're thinking, oh, wait, no, hang on. I want Penny and Daniel to sort it out. Because by this stage, you know Daniel's tragic backstory. And Penny does not know this. She doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. But all is not lost. No. In the meantime, then, uh, Sharon Owens introduces us to Brenda Brown from Belfast Town. (laughs) And Brenda is a struggling artist. And she really is. She's an artist in every true sense of herself. She's so authentic. She has integrity. She will not, you know sully her art with commercialism and she won't sell to just anyone because her mother offers to uh, to to sell her art in, in a car boot sale and Brenda said <laughs> absolutely no way I'm no. not doing that yeah. even though she's literally a starving Starve. artist literally starving <laughs> like she yeah. goes into the tea she lives in in the flat um, beside Next, the tea yeah. house and upstairs and again it's a teeny tiny flat and it hasn't been refurbished in decades uh, it's really shabby and she literally just spends her days there painting yeah drinking gin and then when she gets hungry she goes down to the tea house and if Penny's on duty which at the beginning of the novel she certainly almost always is she'll throw in an old cheese and pickle sandwich um, when Brenda orders her a lowly little you know cup of tea and she's paying for it literally with her coins like she's so poor she's on the dole and uh, they don't seem she doesn't seem to have there's there's no support for artists and um, and because she's not willing to you know compromise uh, compromise absolutely no way she doesn't want to take you know a job that'll take her away from her paintings but eventually the dole office catch up with her oh yeah and they force her to go and uh, and and have job interviews and it is absolutely hilarious. Brenda has this obsession with the actor Nicolas Cage like she writes to him all the time because she's absolutely obsessed with him. So I'll read a little bit. This is how she writes to Nicholas. To Nicholas Cage, Hollywood actor, Hollywood Hills, Hollywood USA. <laughs> she sticks several first class stamps on them, which is absolutely hilarious. Like, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. So she's in love with Nicholas Cage. Yeah. And she keeps writing to him. And she, she says... Because he's a true artist. I think that's why she... Because Nicholas Cage does strike me as one of the... Well, he's certainly early Nicholas Cage. I mean, he's, well, he's kind of... Yes, yeah, he's, he's, gone, he's gone downhill. Let's but certainly it. because I think, you know, I, and there is a mention of a lot, some stuff about him, but he was always that kind of from Moonstruck that just that very genuine actor I think yeah. you know he wasn't a Hollywood movie star yeah. so like the, the George Clooney's or whatever he yeah was and he's not like that typical exactly, heartthrob yeah. he was very individual he's a very interesting face yeah. Brenda adores him in yeah. Wild at Heart and she particularly loves his ears and his nose <laughs> And she writes to him and begs him to never get plastic surgery on his ears or his nose because she loves him so much. And she always signs her letters. I look forward to your reply. I am a genuine fan. (laughs) Yours sincerely, Brenda Brown. So she literally sits in the tea house on Mulberry Street. She drinks tea because that's what she can afford. She eats the cheese and pickle sandwiches that Penny sometimes, you know, sneaks at her. uh, Because when it's just Daniel, he never gives her anything for free. And then he complains that she only orders tea. And he doesn't see that she's actually a starving artist. I know. Like support the arts people. (laughs) Come on. Dear God. But you know, I think so. Somewhere early on, somewhere, yeah, whenever she describes her own paintings and they're, they are sort of gr- grim and, you know, I think it's her mum says, you know, do something more upbeat, which she knows will sell because she knows her ability is great, but she just will never dampen her integrity. No. You know, that's who she is as an artist. This is what she sees and this is what she paints. So it's uh, she, Brenda herself is, is such an individual. I know she goes on a better name that her name is. Oh somewhat. yeah, Brenda. She, Brown. she thinks the reason that she's not a famous artist <laughs> is because a she comes from Belfast and b her name is Brenda Brown. And how dull is that? <laughs> yeah. So in the end of the novel, she actually changes her name. But um, during the novel, when she's writing to Nicholas Cage, she you know she suggests different variations on Brilliant. of fabulous names, and um, she wonders you know what what he might think about. Um, the thing the thing I love about her letters to Nicolas Cage like they're not even though she's a huge fan they're not uh, fawning no, or anything like that they're real matter of fact letters yes. and they literally are talking to him about the stuff 
that's just going on. It's like your... they're on the same level. Yes, absolutely. Like, for example, dear Nicholas Cage, I hope this letter finds you well. <laughs> I just want you to know that I saw you in Wild at Heart in the Nicholas Cage season at Queen's Film Theatre. And it was the most thrilling experience of my life. That snakeskin jacket really suited you, as did smoking two cigarettes at once. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been abroad but my parents used to own a caravan in Donegal we used to spend entire summers in it just looking out at the Atlantic Ocean while eating cooked ham and tomatoes off a fold down table <laughs> and all the time you were living over there on the other side in America <laughs> <laughs> She's absolutely brilliant. She goes on to tell him that my family car was a rust covered secondhand Vauxhall Cavalier. Mum and dad and me and my two sisters used to go to Bundoran in it, listening to rock and roll all the way there and back. Elvis usually. It would have been fantastic in an open top with the sun blazing down as we sang along to in the ghetto. But the truth is, it was usually overcast or raining. <laughs> we spent most of the time in the Bon Tuck restaurant in Bundoran town, eating burgers the size of dinner plates. Brackets. Word has it, the burgers in Bundoran aren't as big as they used to be. <laughs> <laughs> it's so chatty. Isn't like, it? When the dole office finally catch up oh, with yes, her. Oh yes, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and fantastic. then um, they send her, they force her to go on interviews, which is absolutely horrific. Was that a thing? Were you, was that a thing? I suppose, yeah, I think it is a thing. If you're on the dole, then yeah, it is. Yeah, because, you know. Even if it's got nothing to do with what your job is. Nothing to do with what her, what her job is. Yeah. So she wow. is a fine arts, mm-hmm. you know, postgraduate. Yeah. Uh, who is painting. Yes. You know, so she is working, but obviously she's not getting any commissions. And uh, so the dole office got on to her and they force her to go to various different interviews. So, um, she was sent to the chemist, for example. She, was, she told the people at the chemist that she thought most of the beauty products on sale were simply little plastic pots of overpriced gunge. <laughs> Go for it, Brenda. And then she goes, she sent to the butchers and she told him that his blood spattered chopping block was upsetting her. And had he ever considered turning the place into a vegetarian soup parlour? Everybody loved soup, Catholics and Protestants and everyone. <laughs> <laughs> then she's going to yes, we agree. <laughs> then she's sent to the civil service, right? So she tries to explain to uh, to the uh, the interviewers uh, her theories, how she thought that intellectuals should be in charge of the country, not career politicians in designer suits, mm-hmm. and um, how she doesn't actually believe in democracy. And she's wearing a t-shirt with an anti-capitalist slogan on it. So she's explaining all this to him and they, and they just pipe up and they, uh, excuse me, excuse me, madam, we're just looking for temporary filing clerks. <laughs> She's like, oh, okay. Uh, But then she finally does get a job. Yes. So she's working in a major supermarket. She doesn't tell us the name of the supermarket. But um, she... uh, she has to wear a uniform, which she takes huge umbrage at because yeah. it's nylon. She's allergic to nylon. <laughs> uh, who isn't who allergic isn't? to nylon? Um, but uh, she she's kind of told to stack the shelves. So she's, you know, it's not too bad. She yeah. she knows how to do it, but it's absolutely backbreaking work and the worst bit of it is the customers who come in uh, most of the customers that morning appear to be pensioners all ferried to the supermarket on cut price buses <laughs> they didn't seem to know where anything was and they all pinched Brenda's arms to ask her questions what's on special offer the day love Brenda didn't know have you tights to match my coat love <laughs> Brenda didn't know would this kind of fruitcake cause constipation Brenda didn't know and she didn't want to know. Stop pinching me for heaven's sake, she said to the elderly woman who was a lot stronger than she looked. My poor arms are black and blue. It's a pity about you, replied the outraged lady. I'm going to report you to the manager. You have a shock and attitude problem. I'm sorry, but I'm only asking you not to pinch my arms. This is a supermarket, not a kinky brothel. You cheeky article. It's just you're very strong. What are you looking for anyway, spinach? <laughs> so Brenda, poor Brenda goes on to lose her job. And yeah, she gets fired. So like, funny. And she's so enraged because she's literally only earned she's worked out she's been there for less than three hours so she's only earned 12 pounds oh my god I've been abused <laughs> so on her way out she grabs the, this uh, chapter which I adore is called chapter 21 Brenda's priceless melons of delight so you have no idea what, what's, going, what's on. going on right um but then you find out because when she's leaving the supermarket before she leaves she uh 
stumbles upon a massive big uh, display of watermelons <laughs> and she starts literally destroying the shop wow. with them. So she picks them up and she's pitching them everywhere. She's breaking stuff. Sort of and then, Yeah, she's having a total meltdown. But then she runs into the office, grabs the intercom and starts shouting, Dance stores is way better than this. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, brilliant. so she leaves them and weirdly they, they don't have her back ever. <laughs> I mean, the bravery of Brenda, isn't she? She's just so feckin' brave. She's it, my hero. Yeah, she's just fantastic. She so <laughs> believes in herself in, low, in so many ways, but that is just a hilarious scene in our spinach. Whichever <laughs> 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 gets that with old people, they do tend to binge yes. it. Like, Sorry, dear. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, oh, that's personal fantastic. space, people. Okay, so now doesn't she get a a little gallery exhibition in Galway somewhere? The Blue Door, I think. The it's Blue called. Donkey, the Blue gallery Donkey Gallery have commissioned her. Yes, have commissioned her, and um, to for you know to uh, to exhibit, which is amazing, amazing. Yeah. And she, in fairness to her, she is very excited, and she writes to Nicholas Cage and tells him <laughs> all about it. And um, she, her mother, gives her a beautiful ornate. Uh, frame for one of her paintings things are looking up yes at last she buys herself nice uh, a beautiful dress for monsoon Oh yes Glittery and with beads on it And everything She buys herself shoes Strappy in, shoes Yes strappy shoes And uh, checks them for the sales sticker Because yeah. they cost £4.99p wow. She doesn't want everyone, anyone to see that And she, yeah she gets really excited And things are on the uh, on the up But when things are on the up In a novel like this yeah. And it's only midway through You know it's not going to work out And it doesn't no. It doesn't work out Oh Brenda I know poor Brenda <laughs> Uh, so uh, eventually Brenda decides um, that she's going to give up yeah. the art altogether and um, and she goes and she ends up living in the wilds of Connemara and yeah. um, gathering rainwater yes and monitoring it with a, with a, with a young man with yes. similar pursuits yes. and she decides that she's going to put childish things away and now and she writes to Nicolas Cage saying it's very you know it is kind of childish of me to you know be in love with you yeah. um, so I've decided this is my last letter I wish you all the best yes your genuine fan, Brenda Aww. Brown. But just so we can say that, don't, do you feel that Brenda was happier when she gave up her art? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, is this, um, is this de- deliberate yeah. action by the writer yeah. to show that, you know, most people, when they find out you're creative of some mm-hmm. kind, to say, oh, my God, it's amazing. It's so interesting. It's fascinating. It's not really a job. It's your passion. Yeah. And I think that's the problem, yeah. that it's not really a job. It's your passion. Yeah. Because then if it doesn't work out and if you can't support yourself as well. Yeah. Um, and if you're not taken seriously, yeah. you can't sell your work or nobody well, can, appreciates you. It's not just your job they're dissing. It's you it's as a person. You. And that's yeah. hard. Well, it can be torturous, you know, and we were just talking about this earlier, but I know a lot of people in, in all different walks of the arts, you know, writers, actors, composers. And, you know, you do feel sometimes that it's a feckin' noose around people's necks that they just can't sort of let go. And, and I've also met people who have given it up, even though it was their dream and their absolute ambition. And they're far happier for just sort of letting it go. So I do think it's very brave of Sharon to put that out there because everyone's always like, oh no, follow your dreams and don't give up and you'll get there in the end. And sometimes it's just not worth the struggle. She's so happy and she's living in this little, you know, I don't know, remote part of Connemara, but she also has a dog called Nick. Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I I couldn't agree more. She's way happier when she gives up her dream of being an artist. It's too hard. Yeah. Uh, it certainly is too hard for Brenda. I mean, her life was miserable. Yeah. And it, like reading her bits, like she's always cold and she's yeah. always hungry and she doesn't really seem to have any friends. No. And I'm be- working so fucking hard. That's what drives so me mad. Hard. You know, it's not like she's sitting on her hole. She's working her ass yeah. off and just getting nowhere. Getting nowhere. And in yeah. the end, what happens is that she gets really, really, really drunk and she's in her flat and uh, she is this yeah I think this is the one mm. and then she goes off her mother invites her for dinner yeah so she goes to her mother's house her mother is a dote and very she supportive um, but and, and also really worried about her she worries about her a lot you know and uh, so Brenda leaves the flat but she leaves the Christmas lights plugged in she's the little two bar heater plugged yeah. in and then she's got all her terps from yes. the paint because she's just painted a beautiful portrait of Nicolas Cage yeah. that very afternoon 
And she had a very pleasant afternoon. She did that day. But she did drink a lot of gin. She did. And then because of that, she forgot to turn off the fairy lights. She forgot to unplug the two bar heater. Mm. Off she goes to her mammy's house to get the roast chicken dinner. And in the meantime, the whole place goes up in flames. I'm bringing with it all and destroying, sorry, yeah. all her 200 paintings yeah. that she was supposed to be bringing down to go away the next day. Yeah. I don't know how she was going to get them down yeah, there on the, I, yeah. on the bus. Like yeah. I don't know how. But anyway. But Sharon totally kills it there, doesn't like She, she kills just, a stone yeah, dead. So there's dead. nothing. That no. She's got nothing apart nothing. from what's actually saved is the p- portrait the picture, of yeah. Nicolas Cage. But yeah. Brenda doesn't know that because she never returns to the flat. No. And uh, so her dreams literally go up in smoke. They do. Um, we better talk about some of the other yes. characters. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's a lot of characters. <laughs> Let's talk about the creepy crawlies. I love Let's them. Let's talk about the creepy crawlies. So the creepy crawlies are two sisters. <laughs> They're twins. They're twin sisters. <laughs> Retired school teachers. <laughs> yes. They've lived together all their lives. Yeah. They live in the family home. <laughs> yeah. They look down their noses at everybody yeah. and they do good works. Yes. Capital G for good. Capital, Capital G. W for yes. works. They shake their canisters they outside shake the, the church. Canisters, yes. And they collect with things like the War Memorial yeah. Trust. <laughs> and they hope someday to meet the queen. They are hideous creatures. They are hideous creatures. And uh, because they think that they are all giving and all good and oh, pious. Yes. But in fact, they just, oh, they hate teenage oh, single mothers. Yeah. They hate They're people really born nasty. out of wedlock. They call them bastards. Yeah. <laughs> they do. And there's very few little uh, profanity no, in this novel. Yeah. So that really, that really you know, struck me. You know, they live near the tea house. Yeah. And so they always go in to shake their collection boxes mm-hmm. under um, Daniel much disproving nose yes. uh, and then Penny's soft hearted face because Penny always gives them money and um, but then they discover hilariously they've been called to um, the city hall yes. uh, to celebrate their good works and um, there's going to be a mystery guest and they think it's going to be the queen they do so <clears throat> They're very excited about this and uh, they want to get something fabulous to wear. Yes. So they can't find anything in Belfast. They need so brooches. They need brooches, yeah. <laughs> they can't find anything nice in Belfast so they decide to go down to Dublin on the train and they go into Brown Thomas. Know, it sounds so exclusive, <laughs> doesn't it? It's like, oh. And they are horrified. Well, not horrified, but they're very relieved, in fact, when nobody asks them about the partition. <laughs> <laughs> they can't understand it and they're just allowed to shop freely <laughs> in Brown Thomas they get biscuit coloured uh, oh, yes. dresses with brown hats and brown boots and uh, the sisters names are Beatrice and Alice and Beatrice worries that she looks like a shortbread, shortbread biscuit that's been dipped in chocolate at both ends <laughs> and sounds like oh, she yes. has <laughs> <laughs> and on the train back to Belfast, uh, they transfer their booty from Brown Thomas into Harrods shopping hilarious. bags so that nobody will know. Oh, my God. They're so hilarious. And then somebody advises them when they can't find the brooches. Um, I can't remember who it was who advised them that their mom perhaps left. Yeah, it's some. actually Daniel from it's the tea Daniel, shop. Daniel, is yes. it, who advised them. So up they go to the attic and drag out the old sort of treasure chest. And lo and behold, there's the mum's brooches and all. But they uncover... The fact that their father, who they assumed was their father, is in fact not their father. Not their father. But he is. Is he a German? He's a German Jew. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, horror of horrors. And their father was a decorated war hero. Yes. And everything. But in fact, it is kind of a lovely story because the father always, the man they always thought was their father. Knew that Jim. he was not, yeah. yeah, and that the um, this German Jew uh, was must have been a refugee in Belfast yeah. at the time of the war, had a relationship with their mother while their father, who they thought was their father, yes. who wasn't their father, yeah. was off was actually yeah. uh, fighting in the war. So, um, and he just accepted them and he was very loving, and they grew up in a very loving house. Yeah. And shame on them for being so judgmental, yeah. but. There, this discovery that they make kind of changes their Does, perspective. Yeah. But really what I was going to say about the Creepy Crawlies is that they're one of the very few couples who are just, the love is gorgeous. It's such a lovely love story. They're twin sisters. They've always lived together. They yeah. get on so perfectly yeah. um, and they stay it's together at the end. It's a match made in heaven. Yeah. And it's one of the very few ones in yeah. this book. Yeah, it's funny, isn't yeah. it? Because one of the the worst relationship, I think, is um, Sadie Smith and her horrific husband, Arthur. It's hilarious. That's hilarious. He, Arthur is a conservatory salesman. 
Yeah. And like in, in novels, I always think, you know, salesman and especially successful ones, it's kind of fiction speak for hideous creature. <laughs> <laughs> adulterer. <laughs> he's an adulterer. And, but it's not only that he's having an affair with Patty Pat, <laughs> as he calls her, <laughs> but it's that he is so disparaging of Sadie. Yeah. He, he uses her yeah. as well because he basically uh, has aging parents living with them and Sadie looks after them. Mm-hmm. She irons Arthur's shirts for him she makes everyone's dinner she skivvies she cooks she cleans nobody thanks her and he calls her really disgusting things like um, the pink elephant if she's wearing a pink outfit (laughs) and like lumps of lard and always like Sadie is a a very small little lady in in height and she loves her grub so she is overweight and Arthur just never lets her forget it no he's awful to her but what's gorgeous is I mean um, even though the troubles is not a feature of this novel and there is definitely some guerrilla warfare going on and that happens when Sadie discovers about Patty Pat and Arthur's infidelity and decides to wage war on him yes it's so good it's so good and it's so funny because um, she just does things like she clips the buttons off his suit And he's going away for a dirty weekend yeah. with his mistress in, to Paris. And yeah. she, she packs in into his case. She uh, slips some uh, pornography. Yeah. Which would amaze me how, you know, when something like that happens, it's so horrific. I love what the slow revenge, you oh, know, instead nothing, of just, oh my God, I've caught you Nothing doing like it. There's nothing quite. And, you know, the way Sharon writes the story, because it's going on and she's waiting and she's waiting yeah. and she's, she's gathering. Biding her time. Biding her time the whole way through. It's just so satisfying. So sad. You are punching the air. Yeah. Because there's a horrific scene, but it's also hilarious <laughs> when Sadie, who has um, stolen a set of Arthur's keys and made a match of them so she can get into all his little nooks and crannies yeah. and she steals her way into his <clears throat> office while he's at a, a meeting yeah. and uh, she secretes herself beside this great big I don't know cupboard thing yeah. in the office filing cabinet, yeah. and then she prepares she gets a little footstool for herself she sit, settles down to wait for Arthur to come back to reveal something about himself and his affair and while she's waiting she's a paperback <laughs> And a bag of toffees. <laughs> what a pleasant way to spend the afternoon. <laughs> and then Arthur does come back with Patty Pat. They proceed to have very wild, vigorous, wow. riotous sex on yeah. the on the um, on the office table on the it? office desk. But not only that, you know, I'd be I'd be out there with the fucking I'd oh. get whatever implement yeah. I could find. Yeah, a paperweight yeah. would do it. Uh, but no, Sadie just sits there eating her toffees yeah. and perhaps even reading her paper. Yeah. Back. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Waits for them to finish. But as well as that, um, Patty Pat reveals her nickname for Sadie, which is Sadie Sponge. Sadie and Sponge. the bitter lemons she calls uh, Arthur's parents. He's basically just waiting for them to die so yeah. he can inherit. Yeah. So she decides to sort of sleeve around some brochures, you know, all these like fancy, you know, places to go and eventually encourages them to get their nest fund and feck off to Greece for their retirement, so which they good. do and which horrifies him because that's what he was waiting for was the little nest egg yeah. but there's such a lovely sense of the elderly there and you know the way Sharon writes it, people who just sit around waiting for oh my God. the grim reaper whereas there's lots of life to live and you know they wanted to leave the money for their son as well which drives me mad Yeah, uh, but they didn't and, and so she rescued them as well as herself really. yes so she just wants to piss Arthur off and yeah. she does that but in fact inadvertently she also gives them a completely new lease of life because She's... they go out to Greece and their arthritis completely tears yeah. up because of the heat <laughs> and then they meet all these other people yeah. and they're you know and, and they're learning Greek yeah yeah and it's it's actually, it's such a great storyline. Oh, it's gorgeous. I love it. Because they literally, their lives are over. Their, their lives, lives are shit. Yeah, so they basically them. lived in their, hus- in their son's house uh, in, in the midst of a very unhappy marriage. Yeah. And watched the telly. Yeah. The end. <laughs> <laughs> There's a real grandma, grandpa Joe vibe about those, isn't it? So she sorts out his parents. She um, reveals his infidelity at a work conference. Yeah, he's getting a big award. Yeah, he's supposed to be getting salesman of the year. And instead, Sadie um, tells everyone she gets up onto the podium um, because he wins this trip, you know, a a little, I don't know, a hotel getaway. She goes, we won't be taking that, but we'll be giving, we'll be raffling that for charity. You're welcome. And also, my husband is a dick. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then she tells him, he calls you this, he calls you that. Like she, she insults everybody. She insults in the room. everyone and tells them what Arthur, all his little pet names, which are really rude and yeah. just mean because yeah. he's just mean. And uh, so she ruins his career. And then she she gets the house, even yeah. though he it was all just in his name. Yeah, it was only in his name oh, as well. What an ass. Yeah, what an yeah. ass. And he thought he was just going to get it. He was basically waiting for the parents to die. Then he was going to get rid of Sadie. Then he was going to move Patty back in. But she has no, to get no, this happens. She has to get proof of the infidelity properly. Oh yeah, and this is hilarious. hilarious. So she goes to Patty Pat's apartment and she stands outside. Near, she's on the patio. Yeah. She's she got she gets up a fire escape, I think, to get up there. And on the patio, there is a clothes horse of clothes, and she says, um. She couldn't help feeling one of the towels to see if it was dry yet. <laughs> <laughs> like, how housewife Such a housekeeper. <laughs> and um, the other thing about, which is amazing about Sadie as well is when she gets rid and she goes back to the house and it's Christmas time when this all happens. But she doesn't have to do all the shit that she's oh, had to I do before. Oh, I love her Christmas. Tell us about her Christmas. Yeah, so normally, obviously, she's cooking and cleaning and he's got relatives who come over and she never gets to sit down and she's always doing some... But this time she just does everything that she wants for herself. You know, it's just so, it's just about her. She relaxes. She watches TV. She makes <laughs> lovely food for herself. And then when the cretins all come calling, you know, she tells them Such she barely opens the door. Like it's all his aunts and uncles or whoever they are. And she just tells him that he doesn't live there anymore. And she gives him the address <laughs> to go to Patty Pat's. Can you imagine Patty Pat without them arriving? <laughs> but it's just, just the, the, the wonderful realisation that happiness is on your own sometimes. You know, oh my this, God, it is. You know, the entrapment of bad marriages and other people who expect you to do things. And yeah. she, she does nothing for herself. It was, obviously, the eating is comfort eating, uh, you know, because she is so unhappy in a lot of the ways. But she also really enjoys food. She loves that's food. That's okay too. And you know? I cannot read her without having no. food. <laughs> to hand <laughs> because it's so comforting it's so lovely and the food she eats is gorgeous yeah. and I love the way she decorates her Christmas tree on Christmas Day does, in her yeah, own time in her own that's exactly oh, it it's yeah. gorgeous she's not to anybody else's schedule it's all to her own yeah. but you just get that sense that she's finally happy as yeah. well Sadie ends up getting a job in the newly refurbished tea house on Mulberry Street yes. and you just know that she's just going to be so happy yeah. and it's all kind of beautifully wrapped in a yeah. gorgeous pink bow at the end and everyone is happy and it, you just you you feel that great sense of yes yeah. and you're you know fist punching the air totally like the, the tea has itself comes full circle with the makeover at the end that gets the big makeover at the end because that's damaged in the fire that, yes. that uh, ruins all of Brenda Brown's paintings yeah. and then Daniel comes clean about his past and Penny forgives him and he books them into the Carson Lodge yeah. hotel down in the south I don't or the Lawson Lodge actually Lawson. it is sorry Lawson Lodge and he spends you know he rings to make the uh, the uh, the booking yeah. and he's told oh look that's that room is like 300 pounds a night mm. and he goes book it for three weeks yeah it's and a total vibe there at the end of sort of it's a wonderful life or the Scrooge theme that yes, you know yeah. this sort of this man who you know was obviously the penny pinching and doing everything but just wasn't giving seeing what he had in front of him I suppose it's yeah. a real vibe of you know what you actually have threads throughout all the book and even for the likes of Sadie what you have is your bloody self yes do you know what I mean you're, you're enough there's loads of characters loads of other characters that we haven't even mentioned no, and we've just run out of time but it is I, I just want to end by saying um, if you haven't read The Tea House on Mulberry Street treat yourself if you don't follow Sharon Owens on Twitter do it right now I love Sharon on Twitter she I, I kind of describe her as this sort of quietly militant yes. person so I thought we would finish up with Sharon's wonderful poem Dangerous Coats Someone clever once said women were not allowed pockets in case they carried leaflets to spread sedition, which means unrest to you and me, a grandiose word for common sense, fairness, kindness, equality. So ladies, start sewing dangerous coats made of pockets and sedition. <laughs> 